studying the book of Exodus. And at the point we get to in the text this morning, in Exodus 18, it's been probably a little over a year since this guy named Moses met Jesus through a burning bush in the wilderness. And uh, Jesus spoke to him through the burning bush and said, Moses, I'm calling you to go and rescue my people. I've heard their cries while they're slaves and under oppression in Egypt. And I'm sending you to go and uh, set them free. I'm sending you to the most powerful leader of the most powerful nation on earth to go before him and tell him to let my people go. This is Moses. He's about 80 years old at this point. He had run into the wilderness because he had murdered a man. He's, he's not a totally pure and perfect individual, yet God's using him. In fact, you know, God is in the business exclusively of using messed up people. Those are the only ones he uses, and Moses is one of them. And uh, so uh, Moses goes, and by God's incredible power, he sends uh, multiple plagues. And uh, 10 plagues culminating with the death of the firstborn and frees all of his people from the hand of this oppressor, Pharaoh, in Egypt. And even as they're leaving, uh, God is visibly and physically leading them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night and leads them uh, to the Red Sea where he miraculously parts the sea. They make it across. The sea closes in over their enemies as they're chasing. And then after they cross, uh, God provides for them water for anywhere from a million to two and a half million people, depending on which commentator you read and how you wanna calculate how many people wandering in the desert uh, after being freed from Egypt and God miraculously provides fresh water and then food and then water again. And every turn he's providing for them, even when they complain and grumble against him. And as we get to chapter 18, Moses and and God's people are on their way to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where they're going to meet with him. And we'll see next Sunday, uh, over the next couple of Sundays, God uh, shows himself in miraculous power and gives them the Ten Commandments of how they're supposed to live once they get into the promised land. And uh, on their way, uh, we get to chapter 18, and they're very close to Sinai, if not at the foot and at the base of it. And that's where we're going to be in the text this morning in Exodus chapter 18. But before we get there, uh, just a few introductory things. Moses, just so you know, even though I mentioned he was a faulted and faulty individual, sinful just like every one of us, Moses was a great leader. He was an incredible leader used by God. In fact, uh, look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10 about Moses. This was right after his death. It says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Goes on to say there were none like him. And, and Moses next to Jesus was the greatest leader I believe to ever live. An incredible, incredible leader and man of God, despite his shortcomings. And one of the things about Moses, why why I say some of these things, Moses is quoted often by Jesus himself. Did you know that? Moses said this, and he's often quoted to Jesus. When people wanted to understand Jesus' teachings on things, they would say, hey, Jesus, uh, Moses said this. What do you say? Over.
over and over and over that happens in the New Testament. And uh, he was second only to Jesus. And really the, the big idea here is that Moses pointed the way forward to Jesus. Moses, and Jesus in fact is a greater Moses. All of the Old Testament points us forward to the cross of Jesus Christ and all of the great leaders in the Old Testament ultimately point forward to Jesus' leadership and to his saving power and his goodness. And Moses was no exception. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says this in the New Testament, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Then look at this. See, I told you Jesus is a greater Moses. Look at verse three. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. First he compares Jesus to Moses. And then he says, by the way, Jesus is greater. Just make sure we get the order right. Jesus is greater. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, Moses pointed forward to the cross to testify to things spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, while Moses was just a worker in God's house, Jesus is the son with all of the inheritance, all of the power, all of the glory, all of all is Jesus. He's greater than Moses and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what made Moses such a great leader? We, we pointed out Jesus is greater, but Moses is still a great leader. Well, what makes anyone a great leader? From the get-go, you should know this morning when we're in Exodus chapter 18, uh, you know, as I study God's word, I try to take it and uh, unpack it together with you. And then hopefully by God's grace, show you how you can do that. And then also how you can apply it to your own life, right? Well, you just need to know as you do that, as I was thinking about application and some of these things, uh, this passage in particular, really the, the greatest application of it is to those who are leading and specifically those who are leading within uh, the church. Now, so I just want to acknowledge that right away. It's geared towards leaders, but before you tune me out now for the rest of the morning going, ah, I'm not, I'm not a leader, or you don't consider yourself one in the formal sense, the reality is every one of us are called to lead in some way, shape, or form. John Maxwell's uh, keen of saying that leadership is simply influence. And all of us have influence in leading and caring and serving other people. Influence for God's kingdom and you're called to lead even if the only person you ever lead is yourself you're still leading someone who's precious and valuable to God so you're a leader see you might lead yourself you might lead your family that could be your primary family your spouse your extended family you might lead your friends you might lead a life group you might lead a small team at work you might lead a toddler you might lead a multi-million dollar corporation. You might lead a study group in your biology class. 
you might lead by serving on a volunteer board. And whatever you do, you do lead in some ways, even if it's only yourself. So this message is for you, whether you lead in the church, at home, in the marketplace, wherever that is. There's principles here we're going to look at this morning that are applicable to you as an individual. And uh, the other thing I want to make clear this morning is that many of the application points, or at least the outline this morning, um, does not fully originate with me. I'm just going to be honest as I can that I'm stealing many of the main points today from a friend, from a, a guy who's a pastor also in the free church, a guy by the name of Larry Osborne, and he's written numerous books and uh, preaches a ton. He's a pastor of a large church in San Diego. And uh, so if you hear me say something, you're like, I think I've heard that before. You might have. You probably have. If you serve on our board, you probably have. Um, and I'm just being upfront right away that uh, he articulates some of these things better than I can. So I'm just stealing what he said. Is that fair? All right. Now with that, let me pray. There's my disclaimer for the morning. And then we're going to dive into Exodus chapter 18. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. And uh, Lord Jesus, as we uh, study the example of your servant Moses, uh, would you teach us so that uh, we could be like him and ultimately be like you in the ways that we lead ourselves, the ways we lead our families and our church and our workplace? Holy Spirit, I pray too that even as I teach and unpack your word, that uh, you would be teaching me and speaking through me. Pray against the enemy as servants, their works and effects. Cause, cause us not to believe your word, to uh, uh, not rest in your grace, not live out who we were called to be, but instead to, to cower in fear or in guilt. So Jesus, would you free us and uh, help us by your spirit to make us more like you? It's in your name we pray. Exodus chapter 18, let's just read through the passage together. And if uh, you can look it up on uh, your digital device, or if you uh, want to grab one of the Bibles out of the pew, it's page 34. And uh, let me just start reading chapter 18. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro shows up earlier in Exodus in chapter 2 and into chapter 4, and he's known by a different name at that point, <coughs> Raul, or Ruel, excuse me. And uh, as Ruel, it, he just has a different name. He's known by a couple different names. So this is the same guy. This is Moses' father-in-law. Now, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, so in other words, his daughter, after he, Moses, had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now we don't have any account in scripture of uh, Moses sending his wife and his kids back home to uh, his father-in-law Jethro. Um, and so we don't know for sure when this is. There's a couple possibilities. It could be before he entered into Egypt for their safety, sent them back. It could be that after they uh, crossed the Red Sea, they came back and Moses sent them, hey, go find your father and tell him what's happened and uh, ask him to come and see us. We don't know. But in any case, at some point, Moses sent his wife and his two sons back to his father-in-law. 
And now they've crossed the Red Sea and uh, they're coming back with Jethro. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, he said, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they went into the tent. It had been possibly up to over a year since they had seen one another. So a lot of catching up takes place here. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them (coughs) out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, Jethro said. Now I know it because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So do you get the picture? Uh, Jethro showed up with Moses' wife, with Jethro's daughter and uh, her two sons, and they come back, and there's a a big family reunion for a while. They're sharing stories of all the things that God has done, all the things we've studied together in these first 17, 18 chapters of Exodus. And then uh, when you look at verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. So the next day is kind of like when your parents who are a long ways away come to visit and then they hang out with you at work the next day. Because Jethro sees what's happening and look what he does. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me. And I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, Moses, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do this alone. Now obey my voice, he says, I will give you advice and God will be with you, or excuse me, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it'll be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Did you see the, the, what's happening here? Moses' father-in-law shows up. He sees Moses sitting down to, to sit and judge and listen to and counsel all the people. A million to two and a half million people. This sounds awful to me. Both from Moses' shoes and from the shoes of the people waiting in line to talk to him. 
you know, it's like going to the DMV. It's no good. You're just there forever. And, and that's what's happening here, right? And so Jethro says, Moses, this is, can I butt in a little bit? Can I give you a little advice? This is really dumb. Why are you doing all this? You can't do all this yourself. You need other people to come alongside you and help. You need to attain to the things that only you can do and let other people care for some of these other things. You need to lead in the way that you can best lead the people. The things that only you can do, that's what you need to do. And you need to delegate some of these other things and empower other people to do these other things. And so uh, they, Moses prays about it. He goes to the Lord, he comes back, decides it's good and he does it. He listened to his voice and Moses chose, verse 25, able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. That idea, by the way, of, of judging them can mean uh, settling disputes. It can mean uh, counsel. It can, it can mean a variety of different things, not like necessarily just a judge, you know, on the bench with a robe and a gavel, but, but really giving advice to people, a godly wisdom and counsel. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Now, uh, there's a handful of principles we could unpack from this passage and I'm gonna kind of key in on five of them this morning. Moses was a great leader. So what made him such a great leader? Well, uh, there's some principles here we can see that, that will help you be a good leader of yourself, in your home, in the marketplace, in the church. And the first one is this, great leaders, and we see this in Moses, are teachable. Great leaders are teachable, friends. First of all, a great leader will learn from God. Proverbs 8.33, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs says, listen to my instruction and be wise. Don't disregard it. The first person and the first place you ought to learn wisdom and learn and grow is uh, in God's word. Spending time in this book, reading it, studying it, praying over it, letting God's spirit teach you. You need to learn God's word. That's why you need to be in a life group, right? Or you need to be in a Bible study or you need to come to equip. You need to grow up, not just show up, but grow up, right? And you need to get in this word and get connected to it. Great leaders, a great leader will learn from God, first of all, but also a great leader will learn from other believers. A great leader will learn from other believers. Proverbs 27, verse six says that the wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy kisses you many times. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. And when you trust someone, you allow them to speak truth into your life. And so a great leader takes wisdom and correction from those who are their friends, from other believers. Uh, Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. God is gonna use other people in your life to help you grow to be more like Jesus Christ. You will, you, you need to be in relationship with people. We all need friends is the way we like to say it, right? A 
great leader is, is they learn from God, but they also learn from other believers. And by the way, not just believers who um, are of the same tribe and always exactly like them. Sometimes you can learn from believers who maybe are at a church where you don't necessarily subscribe to every theological conviction, but you realize, you know what, I can learn from them. And uh, you can even turn your critics into coaches. But great leaders learn from other believers. And ultimately, really, and in the case of Moses, what we see here is a great leader will learn from anyone. From anyone. As I mentioned, including critics. Proverbs twelve fifteen says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. He takes it in. He, he learns from what he can and dismisses what isn't applicable. But a, a great leader learns from anyone. They listen, in Proverbs nineteen twenty. listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And the reality is often God will teach us things sometimes from the least likely of sources. Now it's in this order, right? First from his word, from other believers, but also you can learn and grow by learning from anyone, anywhere. When this account's retold in Numbers, we read that it was actually the Lord who told Moses to do these things. But in this case, it's a guy named Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who by most accounts up until this point, he was referred to as a priest of Midian, probably more likely than not a priest of, uh, of false idolatrous gods, who, if that's true, the, the fact of the matter is, until the day before this event, when Moses recounted everything that God had done, was not yet a believer. And then the next day, all of a sudden, is giving advice to Moses. We can learn from people, uh, from anyone, people on the outside. Many leaders never will venture outside of their tribe. Sometimes it's arrogance. Sometimes they think they have all the answers. Sometimes insecurity. They don't want to leave their comfort zone, whatever it is. But uh, if, if you want to grow, you need to learn from people outside. Consider the lessons that a Formula One racing team taught a group of medical doctors. You're thinking, okay, a medical doctor, what are they going to learn from a Formula One racing team? This account uh, was written about in the American Medical News Journal on October 4th of 2010. And it says, after completing a 12-hour emergency transplant, the head doctor at Great Ormond Street Hospital in London watched a Formula One race. As a car pulled into the pit, he noted that the crew changed the tires, filled it with fuel, cleared the air intakes, and sent it off in seven seconds. It struck him that it often took 30 minutes to untangle and unplug all the wires and tubes to transfer a patient from surgery to ICU. He wondered if a racing team could teach a hospital how to run an emergency room. Now, I'm guessing uh, that probably wasn't part of the curriculum in med school. Go to a Formula One race, see what they're going to learn. If anything, you know, well, what do they have to know or what can I learn from them about the medical field? Well, imagine the pushback then from the trained medical staff when McLaren and Ferrari racing teams showed up to observe and advise his team on how to improve their emergency services. After all, what did they know about surgery? Nothing. What did they know about patient care? Nothing. What did they know about uh, 
interactions that are complex between doctors and nurses in an emergency situation, nothing. But what did they know about speeding up complex processes? Everything. And so uh, the result was a major major restructuring of the process of handing over patients from surgery to intensive care. The Formula One team suggested better training and actual rehearsals of the new protocols. They provided a step-by-step checklist covering each stage of the handover, including a diagram of the patient surrounded by the staff so that everyone knew their exact physical position as well as their precise task. They designated a leader, the anesthetist, anesthesiologist who had authority to guide them, uh, guide the team through the patient handover. It almost halved their handover errors in the emergency room over to ICU. The biggest problem was that the hospital faced was solved by a group of people who knew nothing about the practice of medicine, emergency room procedures, or medical equipment. And one of the great ironies sometimes of learning from somebody on the outside, learning from anyone, is that you become a hero then to the people in your own tribe. Even though it was something that was pretty obvious to the Formula One racers in the, in the emergency room, it was something new to learn and to apply. Why do I bring that up? Because great leaders are teachable. Where are you leading? Are you leading at home? In your family? I mentioned the toddler earlier. You can learn from those who've been there before. You can learn from those who have done well with their kids. You can learn a lot from outside of your own context. Now, I'm not saying you just take everything in and just apply it however you want to your life and to your leadership, right? Because certainly there's a grid with which you have to filter things through. In fact, Moses doesn't just take it on uh, face value from Jethro and then go do it. It, And Jethro doesn't tell him to. If you uh, could see the Hebrew, it says uh, in verse uh, 19, I believe, um, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. That can really be translated uh, also as, and, uh, you know, seek the Lord in this, this idea of, of check with him, make sure if this is right, and he'll be with you if it is. And so in, you, you always go back to God's word and find out, is this principle that I'm bringing in applicable and, and permissible and okay according to God's word? If it's not, you throw it out. If it is, keep going down that road of trying to learn from it, figure out how you can apply it to your life. But great leaders are teachable. And teachable means learning from God, first of all, and his word from other believers, and even from anyone, like Moses did from his pagan father-in-law up until that time, Jethro. So great leaders are teachable. Also, great leaders teach, equip, and empower others. Uh, This is the pattern of the New Testament church, not just here with Moses, but remember what Moses does? Uh, Jethro gives him advice to, to choose men and to choose men who are able and to train them up and equip them and then release them to be the judges and the counselors of the people. And so Moses does that. He teaches. In fact, uh, when he teaches, one of the things, one of the reasons Jethro tells him to do this is so that uh, in that he says, now listen, you're going to still teach the people the commandments and precepts of God. 
you need to do that. That's something that you do well. That's something that you ought to do. But leave some of these other things that others can do better to others. Teach the people, teach them how to do it, equip them in how to do it, and then empower them to do it. Let them do it. I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm honest, that's one of maybe the most difficult things for me to do. Not necessarily teaching and equipping people to do it, but then letting them do it. You ever struggle with that? Because why? Well, because I think I could do it better. Or I don't want to give that up. And I don't, you, you ever struggle with that? But the reality is great leaders teach, equip, and empower others. And they do this to multiply, multiply effectiveness and godliness in their family, in their workplace, in their church. It's the pattern of the New Testament church, as I mentioned. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others too. He says to the church in Ephesus, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not for the pastors to do it all, but to equip the people to do ministry. And multiple times we see uh, in the New Testament, this exhortation to teach, equip, and empower others. It multiplies effectiveness, but also one of the big reasons for this is to avoid burnout. And burnout, by the way, contrary to what uh, many in our culture would like to believe and, and at times I've bought into, is not a badge of honor. It's not. You know what I mean by burnout? You get to the point where you're doing the same thing over and over. You're giving so much of yourself that there's nothing left. I remember hearing a guy one time uh, years and years ago, uh, a, a, a guy who was preaching God's word. He said, you know what? I'd rather burn out for Jesus than rust out doing nothing. And at the time I thought, yeah, that's awesome. And now I go, man, that's stupid. Because you're not going to burn out, you're going to flame out. <laughs> it's just going to be this big, and it's over. God created us for rest. In fact, he created us to work from rest. And one of the ways we find rest is by equipping, and I'm preaching to myself here, just so you know, and empowering other people to do the work of ministry, sharing the load with others. I wrote down some reasons maybe sometimes we don't want to equip or empower or give away things to other people that we're leading either at home or at work or in the church. Sometimes I wrote down, it's easier than finding training and trusting someone else to do it if I just do it myself. It's a lot of work to train somebody else. Would you agree? But imagine if you never trained your kids how to dress themselves. We're working on that with Charlie and it's a lot of work. It's like wrestling a greased pig sometimes, get his shorts on the right direction because he's on to other stuff or he'll come out with them on backwards or like on one leg and down the other. And it's a lot of work training him in that. But you know what? And Hannah knows that better than I do. But the reality is if we never train him to do that, what's, he's never gonna grow up. He's gonna live with us forever. And I love him, but someday he's moving out <laughs> by God's grace. Sometimes we would try to do it all because we think, oh, I can, I mentioned this one already, I can legitimately do it better. And you know what? You might be able to. And sometimes maybe I'm able to. 
But it's not a legit excuse, is it? We still need to equip and empower others. Sometimes, here's one I think a lot of leaders struggle with. You need the affirmation. We get addicted to affirmation. Ah, good job. Way to go. And if I'm not doing it, who's going to tell me that? Your affirmation comes from Christ first off, right? And sometimes people try to do it all as just religion. If I don't do it, I'm not measuring up or I'm being lazy. And, uh, and Satan speaks this lie to you that you have to do it all. I wonder in some ways if Moses had to have felt that. All the people coming to him, waiting in line to receive his counsel. And Moses, if, if you don't do it all, who else is going to do it? Do you remember that's actually even what he said to Jethro when Jethro said, why are you doing this? And he's like, well, I have to. They come to me for advice. I have to give them advice. I have to teach them in what's true. I, like, this is, what I, this is what I have to do. No. That's religion, thinking that you only measure up by doing this and by doing more. You're going to burn out. Sometimes it's just to avoid what you really should be doing. Because if I stay busy doing this, I don't have to worry about that thing that really needs my attention. There's probably plenty others. But great leaders are teachable, and they teach and equip and empower other people to do the work. This applies at home, at work, in the church. A third thing about great leaders, they prioritize their family. They prioritize their family. Some people think, some commentators, as I've read over the last week, uh, think that when it says Moses sent Zipporah and uh, his boys back to Jethro in verses five and six, it says that they're coming back, uh, that he was actually neglecting his family, that he was prioritizing all the things he had to do and said, you know what? I don't have time. You guys go home. It's a very real possibility. We don't know for sure. We're not told exactly the circumstance of why he sent them back, but uh, it does raise an interesting truth and principle of being a great leader is that your family, starting with your spouse, is first. Not your job, certainly not your ministry. Your family takes priority. Listen, I can tell you uh, unequivocally that God's will is that you never neglect your family. Now, I'm not saying that family is like this idol that I serve and I make them everything about them. I'm not saying that, but I am saying you don't neglect your family for uh, the accolades of, of leading your, in your workplace or leading in the church. God never wants you to neglect your family. Yeah, but I've got all these important things to do for God. And uh, if I give all my time to my family, how am I gonna get, how am I gonna get those done? You're not. That's the reality, unless you train, equip, and empower others. You're, the, the first thing for you to do for God is to love and care for and not neglect your family. First Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, a young pastor who's learning to preach and teach and train and lead the church. He says, Timothy, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, for his family, especially for members of his own household, He's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. 
Friends, there's always going to be conflict between uh, serving and loving and caring for your family and serving in ministry or in the marketplace. There's always going to be conflict there, always. But your family must win. It must. You're like, yeah, but I just feel this conflict. And you know what? Paul says, yeah. And Paul gives the secret to not having that conflict with your family. You know what it is? Don't get married. I'm not kidding. That's what Paul says. He says, I I, I deem it'd be better for you if you stayed single like me so that you could be of single mind. But if you can't do that and remain pure, get married. Get married. And then that becomes your first priority, your first ministry. All the lists of qualifications for those who serve in the church, at the top of the list over and over is how do they lead their home? How do they lead their family? I'm still learning this and hopefully by God's grace, I'm growing in it. But the reality is I'm not as effective as I could be if I were single or as I was when I was single. My commitment is uh, to Hannah and most of the times this happens and sometimes I fail is even like during the week, like I'll give two nights to the church max during the week. And if you call me with a crisis on that third night, I'll say, I love you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And some of you have had that happen because listen, my family is my priority. And if the church grows and everything grows and everything's great, but my family falls apart, it all crashes. Your family must be your priority. Paul goes on, he says earlier to Timothy, he says about a leader, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Like if you can't, can't care for your family, how are you gonna care for the church? Now there's a line in here that just stands out to me. He says in verse four, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Friends, this does not mean keeping your children in fear of you. This does not mean your children obey your every command. That's not keeping your children submissive. That's being an absolute jerk and incredibly wicked and ungodly. Keeping your children submissive means you're helping them to know that they're under God and his authority and they're under you and your authority and your authority ought to represent God's authority an authority of grace and of goodness and of patience. And if you constantly find yourself being the boss of your family and of your children, by the way, this isn't just men, this is men and women at times. If you constantly find yourself being the boss of your family, you don't get it. You don't get it. And by the way, how dare you? Especially men. God, if you have a family, you have children, God has shared his name with you. Father. If your kids are constantly afraid of you, guess who else they're gonna be afraid of? And not in a healthy way. If 
that's you, repent. Repent to your spouse, repent to your kids, repent to your God. Because if you're exerting authority in your home in such an ungodly way, you are the biggest coward of all and you must and need to repent. There's grace for you when you do. must prioritize your family. Great leaders are teachable. They teach, equip, and empower others. They prioritize their family, and they set healthy boundaries. Great leaders set healthy boundaries. As you lead um, in your home, in the marketplace, in church, you're going to find that more and more people look to you for certain things. And the more influential you become, the more they're going to ask and desire and want and need from you. you've got to set some healthy boundaries. A great leader does this. In fact, we see it in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Kind of like with Moses, all the people lining up, they couldn't do it all. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, "It, it is not right that we should be giving up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They're not saying that serving tables or doing those things in ministry aren't good and noble and and needed things. They're just saying, if that's all we're doing, we're neglecting something we should be doing. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. This is the origin of deacons, by the way. Deacon means servant, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We see Jesus doing this and setting boundaries. They're like, so the disciples said, listen, we'll do this, but others are going to do that. This, this is our boundary. In, in Mark, that evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed. He went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him. And they said to them, said to him, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. In other words, you know what that means? Where have you been? Why aren't you available? Turn on your cell phone. Reply to my text, Jesus. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come out. Jesus had some healthy boundaries. Moses needed some healthy boundaries. He needed the advice of Jethro to say, Moses, why are you doing all those things? There's other people who can do that. Now, uh, let me give you an illustration of boundaries that I've seen before and I think is helpful. Uh, Randy, would you mind helping me come up on stage here? Everybody give a hand to Randy. Now, in setting boundaries, what you're, what you're doing is you're, you're keeping people from exercising undue authority into your life, whether that's, uh, or, or false priorities, if you're a leader, whatever. But so Randy, what I want you to do is just, uh, you can kind of face that way and just lean, lean back. I'm going to catch you. I've got your arm. I've got you here. Just start leaning back until uh, I'm the one holding you up. Okay. Good? You're a big guy. Should have picked somebody smaller. Now, who's in control here? Who thinks it's me? 
Who thinks it's Randy? Okay, you can stand up. The one in control is Randy. Why? Because I allowed him to put all the weight of who he is and everything and his total well-being was in my care. And now, you know what? I'm totally submissive to his needs and wants and desires. And I've allowed myself, I haven't set a good boundary and I've become slave to him. Not that holding you up wasn't a good thing. But sometimes in setting boundaries, what you need to do, now turn and face that way and just go ahead and start leaning back again. Go ahead, ahead, come on. That's healthy boundaries. Do you get it? Thanks, Randy. Give Randy a hand. To where if, if you're constantly, you know, submitting to what everybody else wants you to do and not to the thing that you're called to do or the priorities that you're called to do, like prioritizing your family, suddenly you're no longer in control and, and someone else is exerting all the authority and control in your life. And healthy leaders set healthy boundaries. Now, I'm not saying that you take this to the extreme and you just go, okay, well, I'm not helping anybody or doing anything. That's nonsense, right? And that's no helpful, not helpful either. But I am saying most of us tend to, to give authority away in some of those ways in a way that's unhealthy, whether it's at home and you're letting your children run wild when they shouldn't, or if it's in the marketplace or if it's in the church, whatever that is, learning to set healthy boundaries. The disciples did it. Jesus did it. Moses does it here in Exodus chapter 18. If you want a good resource on this, there's actually a book called Boundaries. And there's even one called Boundaries for Leaders. They're both by a guy named Henry Cloud. And I would uh, commend both of them to you. Last but not least, great leaders are teachable. They teach, equip, and empower others. They prioritize their family. They set healthy boundaries. And last but certainly not least, they know that character matters more than talent. That character matters more than talent. In 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, we have all of these qualifications for those who would lead in the church. And do you know not one of them really has to do with skill? They all have to do with character. They all have to do with character. With who you are as a follower of Jesus. Not Now, now if you look at these lists, if you would go and read these later, you're going to find that no one but Jesus himself measures up to those lists perfectly. So what we're not talking here is saying that everyone who leads or serves has to be perfect because then we'd be out of luck. But it is saying that character is more important than talent and character is something that can grow in your life and should be growing in your life. And character matters most. And in this account in Exodus, it says that Moses, He listened to the voice of his father-in-law, verse 24, and all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. He chose people. He chose people who were able, who matched uh, a certain level of character. Now, leaders who are able are not often the perfect and shiny ones, but they are the ones who are growing in character. And character always trumps talent. So with that, I'm going to close. We're going to sing and call it a morning.
take some time and, and read again through Exodus 18 and maybe take your notes and, and take through it, take that passage through this grid of these different characteristics of a godly leader. And I don't know of all these characteristics, which one maybe has touched home for you in your life. My guess is at least one of them probably has because we all need to grow. But commit yourself before the Lord to, to seek his face and to grow in those areas of being teachable or empowering others or prioritizing your family. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. Thank you for the example that you give us, Jesus, and also you give us through guys like Moses in the Old Testament. Lord, uh, great leaders in your book are often not the ones that uh, we would choose for ourselves or even that stand out visibly to us, but there are those who, uh, who match the character you have for them, who trust in you, who uh, really embody some of these traits we've talked about today. Lord, we all lead in different ways, and these are all traits that all of us should grow in, in our walk with Jesus. So help us to do that. And Father, I pray for those uh, who are here this morning who've maybe never trusted you, that today might be the day, Jesus, they turn from their sin, and Jesus, they turn to you by faith and become a Christian. So as we close now, we sing, trusting you and uh, desiring to build our life, Jesus, upon you. In your name we pray.